Everything has a start, a beginning, a foundation. What are the origins of the faith that is held by over two and a half billion people? It all started with a group that decided to live differently, to love intentionally, and to follow Jesus no matter the cost. The earliest disciples were called by Jesus into a movement that would change the world. And he's calling you to do the same. Investigating Jesus, Change Agents, a new series at Stapleton Church. Hey, good morning, everybody. As Matt said, oh, everything has a restart, I guess, too. No, uh, my name is Sawyer Trapp. I am our uh, student ministry pastor. I'm one of the pastors here at Stapleton Church. Uh, If you are new here, we are extra glad that you decided to join us this morning, take that bold step to attend church. We're so glad that you're here. Um, if you call this your church home, we're also you're glad to be here this morning. Um, we're going to continue with our change agent series this morning, looking at how God is calling us to change our perspective on a lot of different things so we can continue to help him in his mission to change the world. In January of 2018, the Atlantic magazine had an article declaring that faith and trust are collapsing in America. That there's been a steady decline in faith and trust in our world. And that basically the conclusion was, is that it's only going to get worse. And if you do a quick Google search around faith or trust in America, it will not be difficult for you to see that that is the case. According to a 2019 Pew Research study, uh, millennials and Gen Zers, so anybody under the age of about 30 years old, is three times as likely to not trust another person as any other generation. They're three times as likely to believe that if another person had the chance, had the opportunity to take advantage of them, then they would take it. In a 2018 survey by Gallup, they looked at institutions in our society and it's seen that faith has gone down and a steady decline in pretty much every area from the 1990s. I'm going to read this to you. Trust or faith in the medical system is down 5%. Public schools down 10%. News organizations down 14%. Banks, 20% down. Religious institutions down 22%. The only thing that beats them is the trust or faith that we place in our government, down 29% from the 1990s. So it seems then that faith is on the downturn, is on the decline, it's collapsing. But I think the truth is, is that we put our faith in a lot of different things. That faith is a necessary component for our life. We have to have it in order to function. We put our faith in that extra cup of coffee in the afternoon to get us through the day and allow us to do more and more work with less and less time. We put our faith in our devices As we stand or wait in line any more than a few seconds, we pull them out of our pockets or our purses and they cure our boredom. We put our faith in them to connect with other people. And in times of emergency, we can be contacted at the quickest moment. We put our faith in our devices. If you drove into the church this morning from north of the church, you might have taken the Central Park Bridge. And I bet none of us this morning as we were driving or about to drive on that bridge took a moment to evaluate whether we had enough faith or trust in that bridge before we drove across it. No, we just went about our merry way. We didn't think that it actually requires faith 
and trust that bridge is going to hold us and our car and all the other cars on it up, and it's not going to collapse dramatically. We put our faith in our job, our ability to get finances. We, we put our faith that the same job that we left Friday or yesterday will be the same job that we return to on our next day of work. It won't disappear. It won't be given to someone else. You see, we put our faith in many, many things. Often these are things that we don't even think about. They're second nature, that faith in them is almost required to live. It affects the way that we live, our way of living. It's incorporated into our life. Because faith is just trust or confidence in something or someone to act the way that they should. To act the way that is required for their being. A bridge spans an escape, spans, excuse me, escape and holds up other vehicles. Our device gives us entertainment and connection. We trust or put faith in them because we have to, because we're encouraged to, because it's incorporated into our life. But we put faith in God in a different category, in this separate thing that we have to work at or work towards that is separate from the way that we live the rest of our life. It isn't incorporated like faith we have in those other things. It isn't second nature to us. But what, what if faith in God could become that? What if our faith could be, as the title of this sermon, great? If we're a follower of Jesus, if we call ourselves a Christian, then great faith is something that we long for, something that we work towards, something that we strive after. And even if we don't call ourselves a follower of Jesus, you're in this room and saying, I I don't know where I'm at with that, or maybe I'm still trying to figure things out. We're so glad you're here this morning. But even if that's you in this room, the idea of putting your trust and confidence in something so strongly is appealing. Great faith is something that we all want. Something that if we actually had it, it would change the rest of our lives. And in a series on change agents, our section of the Bible is going to challenge us to change our perspective on faith. To one that if we do, if we change our perspective on faith, I think it could have powerful results in our lives. If you've joined us over the past couple of months now, we've been going through the book of Luke in our Investigating Jesus series at this point. And we've been looking at who Jesus is evaluating, as Luke does, as he presents all this information and tidbits and important data about the life of Jesus, was Jesus really who he claimed to be? And if that's the case, what does that mean for us? So we're continuing. We are in the book of Luke, chapter 7, starting right in verse 1. It starts like this. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Now, most of us, when we read a book or the Bible, we skip these transitional statements. We want to get to the content, the stuff that actually matters. But I think there's a lot of important details that are included in these statements. And I think this is one of them. He says, Jesus had just finished saying all of this. What had he finished saying? Well, we've gone over it the past couple weeks. If you joined us last week and the week prior or watched online, you saw as Jesus outlined this message of what it looks like to follow him, how to live as his follower. Last week, Matt dives into what it looked like to love like Jesus. 
to live differently from the way that the world lives. To show love for your enemy. To not judge others out of revenge or spite, but to love them and care about them. First taking the plank out of our own eyes, but then evaluating effectively to help others. To bear good good fruit as an example of our faith and to build the foundation of our life on the rock of God. We want to love the way Jesus loved. He finished saying that. And he had also went over the blessings and the woes, going over the, the way that the world says to get ahead, to advance, is different than the way that God says. That Jesus sends us out to change the world by changing how we see the world. And I love the way that Jesus teaches. Not only does he speak truth and give lessons, but then he goes and he lives it out. It's not just a lecture. It becomes an experiential learning experience where Jesus shows exactly what he just taught. That as the disciples learn from what Jesus is saying, they also get the opportunity to learn what Jesus is doing. And that's exactly what is going to happen in our passage today. Because Jesus had just outlined what it looked like to be his follower. What it looked like to love as he does. And then he's going to go out and do exactly that. So what he had just finished saying is going to directly apply to what he's about to do. And as we continue in verse 2, he's entering the city of Capernaum. And it says there a centurion's servant, verse 2, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So the background on this passage is super important. It's actually the key to understanding what is going on. Because I don't know about you or me, I, I, I have never encountered a centurion in my life. We don't have them walking around today. It's not like you meet somebody at a party, ask them what they do, and say, oh, I'm a centurion. Yeah, that's pretty good work. No, nobody says that. But a centurion, you might, you might think of the word century, was in, as a Roman military officer in charge of a hundred soldiers. They were kind of like the mid-level managers of the Roman guard. They didn't just have a small amount of troops. They weren't like the emperor or the commander, but they had a decent amount of troops. And they had a certain level of power and prestige that they had authority in the area where they worked. This centurion over Capernaum with a hundred soldiers under him. But unlike most centurions who were strongly representative of the Roman government and maybe lived in that way, this centurion seems to be a little different. Because it says that he values his servant highly. That this servant who was sick and close to death was valued by the centurion. That the centurion showed love and favor to this servant, so much so that as throughout this passage you see that he will do just about anything to see if this servant that he loves, who he values highly, will be healed. And the other thing that is so interesting is that centurions were not Jews. They were not part of the movement that Jesus was starting. Starting in the Jewish community and expanding from there, centurions were Gentiles. Officials in the Roman guard, perhaps Roman themselves, but certainly not Jewish. 
And so it'll be interesting to see how this centurion, this outsider, this other, this representative of an authority in the Jew's life, an external authority, that they're under Roman observation, is going to interact with the lowly Jewish teacher and healer, Jesus. But this centurion had heard of what Jesus had been doing, his teachings and his miraculous healings. And so he says, despite my background, despite who I am, my position and power, maybe I need to go to this Jesus and see if he can heal my servant. This centurion acknowledges that despite being an outsider, being a Gentile, being an authority figure in the lives of the Jews that they would have looked down on in disgust as part of this Roman occupying of their land, that even he can have access to God, that he can put his faith in God despite his background. And the same is true for us, because great faith is not about who we are. Great faith is not about who we are. It has everything to do with who God is. It's not about the power, the prestige, the positions that we hold. It's not about the things that we have. It's not about whether we're an outsider or an insider, or whether we've attended church our whole life, or whether this is our first time ever experiencing God. Great faith is not about who we are. Centurion shows us that. But many of us often think it is. That it's about our status, our prestige, our position. That who we are somehow qualifies us to have faith in God. But as we'll see throughout this passage, that couldn't be further from the truth. But also, many of us have experienced these crises of faith. We may have someone in our own lives or ourselves that are struggling with sickness and illness that is perhaps close to death. And we're crying out to God, we're going to do whatever we can to try to bring healing in their life. Maybe you're wrestling with infertility or struggles in your marriage or questioning your ability to parent. And you're saying, God, is my faith good enough? Are you working? Are you active in my life? Perhaps you're struggling with the next step in your life. Looking at which college to go to whether the career path you're on is the correct one, whether you'll ever find that person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. These are questions that we have in our life. These are questions of faith. Of whether the God that we believe in is active in our everyday life. But this passage reminds us that it's not about us. And it's all about God. That great faith is not about us who we are. And despite acknowledging this, despite taking the step on against social, uh, society's bounds against him, despite being an outsider, this centurion acknowledges that there are some separations between him and Jesus. That as a, as a Gentile and as a Roman authority figure, he can't just go to Jesus himself. And so what he does is he sends these Jewish elders these leaders in the Jewish community to go to Jesus on his behalf and try to convince Jesus to come to him. And so we continue on in verse 
uh, 4. So the elders have come to Jesus, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, deserves to have this healing of his servant, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And so Jesus went with them. And so this centurion, being an outsider, he sends someone on the inside. These Jewish elders of Capernaum. And he sends them to Jesus, and they begin to outline reasons why the centurion should have this healing take place. Because we've already seen that this centurion is a little different. Despite being an outsider, despite being a Gentile, he's reaching out to Jesus. And even more than that, this centurion, despite being a representative of the Roman government and non-Jewish, he loves the nation of the Jews. He loves them. He cares about them. Most Roman authority figures put in a placement far away were authoritarian. Would put people in prison just for giving them the wrong look. But this centurion, this military leader, loves the nation that he's in. And even more than that, he backs up that feeling, he backs up that emotion with action. He has helped build the synagogue, perhaps with financial support, being fairly wealthy as a military officer, or perhaps by sending his troops to help actually physically build the synagogue. This centurion had done a lot of good things, a lot of valuable things for the Jewish community. And so what these Jewish elders do are try to convince Jesus, that the things that he has done makes him somehow deserving of God acting. And we often do the same thing, right? We say, hey God, I've given to the church this amount of money. Or I'm trying to read my Bible every day. Or I haven't missed church in three months. I've done all these good things for you. I helped out that person on the street. I gave him money. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Now I think I'm deserving of faith, deserving of having you move in my life. And on the surface, in this passage, it makes it seem like that's what's happened. That Jesus has heard what these Jewish elders have said, heard the good things that the centurion has done, and then decided to come with them. But as we'll see in the next section, as we look at the way Jesus interacts in the world, He doesn't care about the things that you've done. The things that you have, the good things that you've done. Jesus is not looking for performance. Because great faith is not about you or I's performance. It's not about the things that we've done. It's not about the good things even. Now it's not saying we shouldn't do them. But we do it out of relationship with God. We don't do it out of some transactional obligation that if I do so many good things that God will move. That's not the God that we put our faith in. God is not bound by the things that we do. There isn't some sort of inverse relationship that if you do so many things, then God's like, oh, okay, they're good enough now. Faith does not work that way. Even though we so often act like it does. We live our lives trying to show that we are, quote, good enough for God, when the truth is that the God that we put our faith in has been working long before we have ever lived. 
that God was working while even we were still sinners. That God is still good and faithful even when we are not. So I challenge you, if you have this perspective of God, as I have often fall into, that your performance is somehow tied to God's action in your life, then the image that we have of God is a false one. And we need to change our perspective to grow in faith in the knowledge of who God really is. I love the way that Bill Johnson of Bethel Church put this. He said, great faith doesn't come out of great effort, but great surrender. That it's not if we just keep trying, if we just keep working, if we just put more and more effort into it, that then God will reward us. No, it's when we give up. When we say, God, I'm not enough, but you are. That is what great faith looks like. And that's exactly what the centurion realizes. If we continue on in the passage, so Jesus has gone with the elders. He's headed towards the centurion's house. And the second part of verse 6 records this. He, Jesus, was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him. So the centurion sees Jesus coming. Maybe he has a window. He can see Jesus and the elders walking down the road. And he quickly realizes, the things that I have done are not enough. And so he sends his friends to say to Jesus these words, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you in the first place. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. This is so important. The centurion has sent these elders to kind of hype him up, to show the good things that he's done. But then he actually sees Jesus heading towards his house, and he realizes that that is not enough. He perhaps has one of those moments where you kind of evaluate your life. You put your life on the scales in comparison to Jesus. And you see that you, we all fall so short. That not any of us can consider ourselves worthy to come to Jesus. Or to even have Jesus come to us. That when we evaluate our past, the things that we have done, the things that we haven't done, who we represented in comparison to who Jesus is, we all fall short. We all do not deserve to call ourselves worthy. If we can't even live up to the standards that we put in our own life, the standards that we have to ourselves, how much more do we all fall short of the standards of Jesus? the way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus loved. So great faith is not about who we are. It's not about our position. It's not about our prestige. It's not about our finances. It's not about the things that we have done that are good. It's not about our performance. And perhaps God is telling you this morning through the words of the centurion that great faith is not about your past either. We might feel that we're somehow disqualified from God because we messed up so many times. We have that temptation that we fall into over and over and over again. We look at the people that we've hurt in our past 
and the pain that we've caused and saying, there is no way that I can ever have great faith. Maybe at some point in my life I was doing all right and that was a possibility for me. But now, when I evaluate myself in comparison to Jesus, I'm disqualified. But the words of the centurion ring true. Because even though he's declaring that he is unworthy for Jesus to come into his house, that he felt unworthy in the first place for him to come to Jesus, think about what he still said at the last verse. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. That in the midst of his feelings of unworthiness, of evaluating his past, of seeing the unimportance of his performance, he still knows that God can act. That despite all of the things that he has done, the things that he feels disqualifies him from coming to Jesus, he still knows God is good. That God can bring about this healing, that his past, doesn't disqualify him from having great faith. And your past doesn't either. Do you feel that way right now? God is saying to you this morning that great faith is not only possible for you, but it is achievable. God loves you and cares about you despite knowing your past. And he is longing for you to put your faith in him fully and completely. I grew up in a military family. Um, we didn't have to move around a lot, which was good. Uh, if you want to go to the next slide. Um, those, this is my dad here. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And then my uncles here and then my grandfather in the middle. Um, they all served in the Air Force. Um, my uncle on the end was a three-star general in the Air Force, um, which is pretty cool, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I think if you grow up in a military family, I think there's three things that you learn among other things. But the first is that you need to use military time. That military time is the only effective way to manage time. That it is inefficient to say a.m. or p.m. I, I still use it. If you look on my phone or my computer, I still use military time. And it bothers Sarah, my wife, so much because we, we're just off on our time schedules. But it's hard to have it to break. So the first is military time, and the second is, is connected to it, that you need to be early to everything, that if you are actually on time, you are late, and if you are 15 minutes early, you are on time, but it's better to be there even earlier than that. And so I still arrive early to things, whether I need to or not, it just has been ingrained in the way that I approach the world. And the last thing is this is that the military shows you the value of respect and authority. It shows you that there is always someone in a position over you. And that if you went up to your commanding officer and told them off, there's going to be some repercussions of that. And I think actually the key to this passage flows right from that. Because the centurion, as a military man, as a uh, leader in the Roman guard, understands authority. Understands the value that authority has. And that's exactly what he goes to. After acknowledging his unworthiness, his weakness, despite his position and power, he sees the authority that Jesus carries. He continues on in, in verse uh, 8. He says, 
For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I tell this one to go, and he goes. And I tell this one to come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Because despite the centurion's feelings of unworthiness compared to Jesus, he still has authority. That despite having a past and difficulties and being sinful, that people still listen to him. That his position has given him authority. That when people hear what he says, they do it. When he tells someone to go, they go. When they come, they come. When he has a servant, when he makes a request to them, they do it. And the comparison that he is making is this. That if I, an unworthy person, compared to you, still have this authority, how much more authority then does Jesus have? Because this centurion sees that Jesus is different. He has heard of the teachings that he teaches that are so opposite of the ways of the world. And he speaks them with authority, with a claim on the truth. And he sees that Jesus has had authority to heal, to drive out demons. He's heard of the miraculous things that Jesus has done. And he says, you know what? That is a man with authority. That is a person whose authority is so much greater than mine. That despite having a hundred men that would do whatever I say, this lowly Jewish teacher has so much more authority than I do. I think the centurion sees that his authority is not of this world, but his authority is from God. The authority that is above all. And so I love the way that God works in people's lives. He takes the way that we understand the world, the lenses that we use, our jobs, our family, the way we grew up, and he uses them to point us back to him. That's what he's done with this centurion. He's seen that his military background has given him a awesome lens to see Jesus. He sees that Jesus has authority. And the next verse is so great. When Jesus heard this, what the centurion had said through his friends, he was amazed at him. Don't we all want Jesus to be amazed at us? Wouldn't that be powerful? And then he turns to the crowd who was with him, these are those Jewish elders, the friends of the centurion, his disciples and other followers. He turns to them and he says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Because Jesus understands the comparison that the centurion is making. He's making a profession of faith in the authority that Jesus has. An authority not of this world, but an authority of God. And he says, hey, look at this guy. This is an example of faith that you want to follow. This person that you would never expect, this outsider, this Roman representative, this Gentile, this man who had just admitted through his friends that he was unworthy. But this is the man that Jesus elevates, that he is amazed at his faith and says, hey, you want to have a great faith? Be like this centurion. And the passage continues, and it says, 
Then the men who had been sent, the elders and the friends of the centurion, returned to the house and found the servant well. It's so interesting that that's how the passage ends. That there's this declaration of faith, Jesus points them out, and then it's almost like a, a, a side comment, a passing comment. Oh, by the way, they found the servant was healed. If you had somebody in your life that you cared about, that you valued highly, and they had this miraculous healing that brought them back basically from the verge of death, that would be the climax of your story. It would all build to that, and that would be the big impactful moment. And that's not what Luke records. Because I think as important as as significant as this healing is, it is not actually the main focus or point of this section of the Bible. Perhaps in your Bible, there's a heading for this section. And it says, the faith or the great faith of the centurion. That despite this healing taking place, and then obviously impacting not only the lives of the servant and the centurion, but the whole household, that the passage is about this example of what great faith looks like. That the life and interaction of this centurion with Jesus shows us that great faith is not about who we are. It's not about the things that we've done, the performance, the things we try to do to show God that we're somehow worthy. It's not about our past, the mistakes that we've made, that we feel disqualifies us from having great faith. This centurion is lifted up as this example of faith because he has acknowledged this. That great faith is not about how much faith we have, but who we have faith in. That it's not like we're trying to get more and more faith, that we're trying to build ourselves up more and more so we can get to God. No, great faith is putting our trust and confidence fully in God and saying, I surrender. I am not enough. God, you have authority over all things. It's not about who we are. It's not about our performance. It's not about our past. It's not even about how much faith we have. It's who we put our faith in. The God that we put our faith in. Now, this is not to say that we can't grow in our faith. But we don't do that by trying more. We don't do that by doing another thing. We do that by growing in the knowledge of God, by experiencing God more and more, by removing those false images that we have of God and growing in the real God. And we do that by very normal things, things that you have heard if you've been around church, things that we repeat, like reading our Bible, We read our Bible not to just learn more facts and figures, but to see the way that God has moved throughout history, that God is moving even now so we can grow in our knowledge of God. We pray to bring our requests before God, but also to listen to the ways God is moving, to reorient ourselves to the ways of our Father, so that we can look back on our lives and see the way God has moved and responded and our faith grows. We worship together on Sunday. We sing songs of worship because the lyrics remind us of who God really is. And they're put to memory by the powerful melody of song. We join together in community to encourage one another as we strengthen each other's faith by hearing the ways God has moved in the lives of people that we care about and encouraging one another 
when God feels distant, when God doesn't respond the way we thought he would, when we struggle. We grow our faith not as a means to an end, but as the end. God, so that we can know more and more and we can grow more and more and put our faith more and more into the God that we worship. Because the God that we put our faith in is so much bigger than we can ever fathom. The God that spoke the universe into being, the God that is sustaining and holding things together even now, that is not distant and far away, but is working and active in our world. The God that has been bringing about the story of redemption from the very beginning, culminating in God himself coming to earth as the baby born in the manger, 100% human, 100% God. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who broke down the walls and barriers that we seek to separate one another, and who died in our place on a cross, taking upon our sins, our shortcomings, our past, our strivings for performance, and put them to death. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, conquering that sin, conquering death, conquering the devil, to show the God we put our faith in, that God is working even now through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the God that we put our faith in, a God that is not bound by the things that we do, by the walls that we put up, by the performance that we try to push, and a God that loves us and cares about us deeply despite our past. We don't put our faith in God by trying. We put our faith in God by acknowledging the God we put our faith in. Great faith is not about how much we have. It's about the God we put our faith in. I sadly forgot this in the first service. You guys get a special treat. So the great theologians, the Backstreet Boys, sum it up very well. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did as long as you love me. That is what God is saying to us this morning. But you might be sitting there and saying, I feel like I've tried to be faithful to what God is calling us to. I've tried to put my faith fully in him, to put my trust and confidence in the way that God is. Not a false picture of God, but who God is. And even still, God didn't respond the way I thought he would. God didn't act the way he thought, I, I thought he would. The healing didn't come. We're still struggling in our marriage. We're still wrestling with infertility. We don't know what that next step is. God hasn't called us. We're having that crisis of faith and we feel like God is letting us down. And if you're experiencing that right now or have in the past, you are not alone. All of us wrestle with that. In fact, even some of Jesus' closest followers, his first disciples, were wrestling with the same thing. In John 16, Jesus is beginning to tell his disciples that he is going to leave them. That he's not planning on staying with them, but the time is coming, and a time is coming soon where he will return to the Father. And the disciples respond naturally, saying, Jesus, that's not what we thought you were doing. You see, it was common for a teacher to continue to be in the lives of his disciples, his students, for their life. But their teacher, Jesus, is saying, no, the time is coming pretty soon that I'm going to go. 
Jesus was not responding, was not acting in the way that the disciples thought that he would. He was talking about sacrifice when they wanted victory. He was talking about giving up his life when they were looking for a political Messiah that would overthrow the Roman authorities and return Israel to its position of authority. Jesus was not acting in the way that they expected him to. And in that, Jesus responds to their fears, their confusion. And I think responds to our fears and confusion when we encounter situations that God does not respond the way we thought he would. In John 16, 33, it says, I have told you these things that you may have peace. In this world, you, have, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And as the band comes forward, Jesus is saying the same thing to us this morning. That in our lives, we will experience trouble. There will be pain, there will be hurt, there will be situations where we feel that God did not respond the way that we thought he would. And to his disciples and to us this morning, Jesus says, take heart. Because God has overcome the world. If we are truly honest with ourselves, do we really want to put a faith in a God that we can contain in a box? That we can completely understand God in the way of saying, if this happens, then God will respond this way. That a God that we worship is somehow bound by our limitations. No, we want to put our faith in a God that is powerful. That can do things immeasurably more than we could even imagine. This is the God we put our faith in. Yes, that leads us into situations that are troubling, that are challenging, that are these crises and difficult seasons of life where God does not respond the way we thought he would. But in that, we have each other. We have community. We have the ability to encourage one another. We have the ability to grow more and more into who God is, not in who we, who we want God to be. So this morning, I say to you in the words of Jesus, take heart for our God, the God that we put our faith in, has overcome the world has overcome the season that you're in, the seasons that you've experienced in your past, and is going to do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine, bringing about his plan of redemption and drawing more and more people to the saving knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that... You're changing our perspective, God, that we don't have to live with a faith that is all about us, but a faith that is all about you. I pray over the followers of Jesus in this room that they will have that change in perspective, God, that they will be called powerfully into the faith in you. Not in faith in our ability, God, but in your unlimited ability. That as you change us, that you change our perspectives of faith, that we will bring about change in this world, that we will be change agents. God, and if there are anybody who's in this room who doesn't yet follow Jesus, that is hearing all about this faith and hearing about you, maybe for the first time, God, that you would work in your life, work in their life. That you would draw them with the Holy Spirit to see that faith is not about their past, it's not about the things that they've done, but it is all about you. 
that they would acknowledge that they have sin in their life, things that they fall short of who you are, but that you didn't leave them there, God, but you sent your son to die in their place and that they can have renewed relationship and salvation with you through Jesus. I pray that they accept that faith, God, and they grow into a great faith in you. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for who you are. Not who, you want, not who we want you to be, but who, for who you are. I pray that we can put our faith fully and completely in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As we prepare our hearts to receive communion, hear God's word in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Whenever we come and take part in communion, we're remembering and we're participating in and we're celebrating the gospel. Jesus, who knew no sin, willingly laid down his own life for us. And it's because of what Jesus has done. His body was broken, his blood was shed for us so that we could have salvation and full forgiveness of our sins. communion is this incredible opportunity that we not only get to look back and remember what Jesus has done for us and the gift that we've received, but we also look forward to the reward of his return. And we live now in light of those two realities. And so as these elements are passed out, I encourage you to hold on to them for a few moments so that we can take them together. And I encourage you to take these next few moments and reflect and consider your own Give thanks to God for what he's done for you and what he will do.
Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's worship the Lord. Let the truth. 